Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, and we are recording two cents. Hey, John. Surviving. Surviving. <clears throat> Public service announcement, Drew Meredith <laughs> turned 40 this week. So, uh, as a 40-year-old, what do you wish you knew when you were 18? Oh, that's a really difficult one. I know. I was going to just- I, was, I didn't know when I was going to bring it up, but the intro sounds pretty good. Uh <laughs> What do you wish hard you work pays off. Hard work pays off. All that hard work, all those hours, they eventually pay off, which could be complete rubbish also. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great and, advice. Um, I've been listening, I mean, like every middle-aged man, as my wife calls me now, um, yeah. <laughs> I listen to a lot of motivational reels on, on uh, Instagram. And one of the big ones is uh, don't enjoy the highs too much because lows always follow highs. So, and <laughs> and always look out of the lows into the uh, into the highs at the same time. Jeez, <laughs> this is like a momentum strategy. I, I see it. Um, Not the market highs, the you know the life highs. But that too, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so you've been celebrating this week. It's fair to say, like in the office, there's been balloons, there's been more balloons, there's been cake, cookies. Multiple lunches. Negronis. <laughs> we got some work done too. Yeah, absolutely yeah. you did. Some say it started the week before, but uh, mm. still technically work. So the thing is, what happens when you have an events business and there are events people and you have a 40th birthday is the events people are the types of people that throw an event for everything. Yeah. So- <laughs> Um, yeah, it's uh, it's great, mate. Well, happy birthday. Thank happy you. Happy birthday. Yeah. I was hoping you'd come out with some wisdom like, oh, you know, I've had a great chance for introspection and here's what I've come up with. <laughs> In a haze that's, of Negroni, didn't happen, maybe, but that's okay. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> that's good, mate. And uh, yeah, happy birthday. Have fun on the weekend. Stay safe out there. Uh, well, you'll be there, so. I will, but I will not be in supervisory mode. I'll just be <laughs> just sitting on the lounge chair, maybe with a few G&Ts. So- what have you been working on? Working on, apart from planning a giant party tomorrow, 
uh, quite a lot of things. Estate planning and death. I think I might have brought that up last time. <laughs> has been pretty you said popular. You love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think yeah. It's when you deal with retirees in uh, for a lot of your clients. Naturally, their parent, not just necessarily them, but their parents are significantly older. So having challenging conversations, and then we've had. Uh, quite a few clients and, and friends get sick in the last few years too. So, mm. it, it kind of reiterates how important estate planning is, having wills in place and having some sort of uh, structure or an idea of what, what you want to happen to, because we've been on the other side and seen where estates get eaten up in legal fees as well. Mm. It's a pretty dark start though. That probably explains the, yeah. <laughs> the week I've had. <laughs> makes sense. Makes sense. It's not much fun talking about death, but um, <laughs> one thing that has been seemed to have been gone, at least from the uh, the investor zeitgeist, is uh, inflation. Yep. Oh. Yeah. Oh. I thought you were going to play one of the, uh, the fun spooky songs in that oh, one. Oh, no, that, this, this one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that, that's reserved for your forecast. forecast. Oh, I need something else. I'm Maybe pretty sure I had it. Didn't I have a bond no, yield cl- forecast that, <laughs> yeah. that related you did. directly you, to inflation? You, well, <clears> actually, I th- no. You said bond yields, you retraced. It was actually- Interest rates. Interest rates, all right. Yep. Which is bold. And what did the Federal Reserve come out and say this week? I don't know. So they're saying one thing in the media and another in their minutes, which was that they're considering slowing the pace of rate hikes already. And, I, <laughs> and quite a few other articles I look at. There, you know, we've kind of, over the last three, four, five years, we've kind of seen a surprise or a black swan that literally no one predicted pandemic uh gfc very few people predicted before that Mm. um and there was a question being asked this week which was could this be the one time that inflation reverses without interest rates killing it because it's clear interest rates have gone up quickly but they have not filtered into the economy yet you've seen Mm. harvey norman came out yesterday and had like 8% same-source sales growth for white goods and retail product. Wow. So clearly interest rates aren't biting quite yet. Um, and I've, made rightly or wrongly, I've kind of been of the view that most of the inflation has been driven by the supply side. And because it's an annual figure, if you're coming from a higher base last year, naturally you could have disinflation the following year. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Well, we will see. Um, the end of 2023 is when we'll revert to this. Um, we need one of those things that happen on Twitter where you say, remind me of this in one year. <laughs> we will, someone will remember. Someone will remember. Please write into us. Um, okay. So, yeah, great. Um, we've aired a few podcasts on this channel, some really good stuff with uh, Donnie Buchanan, who's from Lake House Capital, Jeff Wilson from Wilson Asset Management. In the next week or so, we've got uh, Nick Raj, who is the chartist. Australia is probably Australia's biggest systematic trader. I recorded an interview with him that day when we were in Noosa. Oh, yeah. Still hasn't gone live yet, but that will go live on Monday. And then we'll probably have another conversation that I had that day with Luke Durbin. Um, he's been on the show before, but he'll be back. And it's a really interesting conversation. Both of them are awesome. And hey, the uh, the Investors Podcast is now cracking the top 10. So That's awesome. Yeah. We have to do a shout out too, don't we? To who? Was it Lyndon? Oh, Lyndon. Yes. 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 So Drew's that. famous. Um, <laughs> Drew was... I don't know where you were, a brewery or something. I was just sitting on the couch my Friday night, just minding my own business. Don't know what I was watching. And uh, I got a FaceTime from Drew and <laughs> drink in hand. And you met you met Lyndon. Yeah, I thought it was an absolute stitch up. So <laughs> Tell us what happened. I was there with, uh, well, at the end of the ESG retreats, so having a few drinks, uh, re- relaxing. And uh, someone randomly walked up and said, uh, what's your name? Drew and and <laughs> said I'd like to introduce you to someone and I thought well yeah I don't know is it either some sort of um some sort of you know 
setup of people that, <laughs> yeah. you know, the old high school days. Yep. Which, no, of course not. Um, <laughs> and they said, Drew from the podcast. I'm like, what? And I, as soon as that happened, I looked at the the people I was with and thought that they'd set it up and asked them to, to <laughs> see if they could make my head explode in, uh, in person. <laughs> but it's good. Yeah, good, I good mean, it's amazing. Uh, obviously, your podcast, not my podcast. Oh, no, your podcast um, now. And it was, yeah, uh, I think it's so uh, not refreshing, but great to hear that people are enjoying the, the goofing that yeah, we do on every Saturday. Yeah. If this is the first episode you have tuned in for, this is the more re- relaxed <laughs> one. Uh, during the week, we have more serious chats, but this is serious. It's just a bit more, um, I guess, casual in, in our tone, but that's great. So, Lyndon yeah. met you and um, I did hear something that she said. She said, um, you know, a bit late to start, but you know what? That doesn't. I don't think that matters. I never too late. Never too late to start. And there's probably a caveat there that uh, while she knew us, she was actually more interested in Kate. <laughs> so Kate, yes, everyone is more interested in Kate. So Kate uh, is the, the famous one. Um, so when she gets back from uh, from being on a boat, Lyndon, she will send you an email. Uh, we've also had a few AGM. It's AGM season. Um, some of my favorite companies had AGMs a lot the past week, Prometicus. But you had two you wanted to single out here, Drew. I did, uh, and big one in the US as well. So, yeah, I mean, we've been flying a lot this year with these events and switched to Virgin after Qantas started losing bags every week. Yep. Uh, but somehow they announced a $150 million improvement in profit in like six weeks. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> The ultimate cyclical <laughs> business. Here we go. And then Rex came out the following day and, uh, and said how Qantas has been gouging customers because they're charging $700 for a Melbourne to Sydney flight. Mm. Um, and I, this is, I guess, the challenge is happening in businesses where they're trying to make up for all the money they couldn't make for the last three years, but their profit margin is clearly expanding even with energy costs going up. So, mm. um, Yeah, Virgin's better. Yeah. I got to silver the other day, so I'm pretty happy about that. I got to gold somehow. Oh, really? <laughs> Jeez. Gross, I'm going to come with you to the lounge. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's Qantas. Um, obviously, a very political thing as always. And uh, Q- QBE, mate, is another one that you have highlighted. Yeah, we all, I think we talk about this one a bit where it's companies that it just seem like a very difficult struggle to hold. Uh, QB, we talked about, was it the stair, up, up on the stairs and down the elevator? Yep. Uh, although, yeah, I think they increased their catastrophe, catastrophe cost expectations to $880 million for the financial year. Um, so that's saying the unexpected weather and climate kind of related events uh, are going up and up and impacting on profits. So. And it's something we, you know, that if you've heard much from the ESG retreat the week before, it's like the broad impacts that climate and all different things are having on the economy and how it's becoming difficult to be an insurer. Mm, yeah. And um, yeah, I, well, I never would have thought ever in my wildest dreams that we would be highlighting Qantas and QBE <laughs> um, as these two businesses. But there you have it. Qantas, um, yeah, looking like it's it's flying high, you could say. <laughs> And QBE uh, with, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, they seem to, yeah, I mean, they always come out and increase the catastrophe allowance and provisions. It's always like, it, it seems to never be really good news when they announce something. It's like people yeah. forget and the share price looks like trickles up and then- Premium, 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 <laughs> and then investment returns will go down. Yeah. Or, it's just such a cyclical business when it probably shouldn't be. Mm. And the final piece of news is um, Bob Iger has returned to Disney. This yeah. is after a very uh, interesting couple what, couple of years where uh, there was a transition to a new CEO and 
you know, I feel like in also that- Also named Bob. Also, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's your problem right there. Um, so, the, basically, I mean, I'll let you fill in the finer details, but basically, Disney's been on this transition through COVID where they spent so much on streaming costs, Disney+. Plus. Um, they've obviously owned things like Marvel, so the Avengers and all that type of franchise was doing really well pre-COVID. And now it seems they're spending so much money on streaming content. That's an issue. There's yeah. been political issues like in Florida. Um, there's a heap of things going on and the great man has returned. Yeah, I think it was one of the first biographies I read a few years ago was about mm. his kind of ascension from in multiple businesses to become CEO of Bob uh, Walt Disney. I think it, it, he stands out as a great leader for that business, mm. I think. He came up with the Disney Plus, like cannibalizing your entire business to do it. But they're facing the same challenge that every other streaming company is, which is it's expensive to create content. Mm. I think I was listening to another podcast this morning and they were talking about how you pull streaming out and every mm. other their part of their business is going well. ESPN is going well. Parks are recovering. Uh, every Marvel movie that gets released smashes expectations. So it's just the streaming business that's pulling them down at the moment. The streaming business is good. It just, it's a hard thing because they're trying to, they've always monetized intellectual property. They're just monetizing it in a different way. Yeah. A way which is probably um, more churn. So, and more expensive. Yeah. But they still have the IP, you know. Netflix came out and basically threw some stones at some glass houses when they came out with their results. And they said basically, you know, all these other players in streaming are spending so much more money and they're all underwater versus our spend and we're a profitable. Yeah. Um, it, it's going to reach an equilibrium. There we go, economics teacher. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's still such an unbelievable business. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, they've got more subscribers across ESPN and Disney Plus than Netflix does. And Netflix has been running it for, what, 15 years? Yeah. And they've been running for three. Yeah. Which is kind of exceptional. I tend to think that the only thing that really matters in media going forward is IP because the way yeah. we consume media is is just completely changed. Like even this podcast, you would listen to radio a few years ago, not podcast. And so this basically in the old media world, you would have a one-to-many approach where there was only a few radio stations that served many. There was only a few TV networks that served many. But now you can, there's you know, a thousand podcasts, there's how many different social media platforms and channels and groups and all this sort of stuff. And it's an attention economy. And so the thing that kind of cuts through all of that is IP and things like Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse and all that sort of stuff. They got Marvel, you know? they got Indiana Jones, they got all the Pixar. Star Wars. Yeah, that's like the amount of things they have. They they started playing that game before they even went into streaming, which yeah. and that was all Bob Iger as well. Yeah. And the problem is it's going to just transition, right, away from that um, like cable cutting yeah. And uh, into more of the the content over. There has over to be the some top. consolidation at some point. Yeah, uh, let's get to the questions, mate. We've been rambling for thirteen minutes. Uh, Fourteen minutes has gone. Um, so we're going to talk about. We're going to answer your questions. We'll we will, as always, award the number one uh, questioner. So if you give us that fake name, uh, we will award you a, a value investor program, four hundred ninety nine bucks in your pocket. And keep in mind that any of the information that we do deliver in this episode is limited to general financial information. So we'll, we will answer questions uh, and we love your questions, particularly lately. They've got better and better and better, which is wonderful. Uh, send them through on any of the RASC websites. You can head to the menu and it says, ask a question. Just select the Australian Investors Podcast. Drew and I will answer your question as best we can. Um, I think I still haven't heard from whoever, I think it was Hugh Jundies. <laughs> 
Hugh Jundies has probably got other priorities. Uh, he's got other things on his mind. Um, <laughs> better than Andrew Derrimuth. <laughs> Andrew Derrimuth. Although there was someone taking the mickey out of that, um, but we'll get to that. Um, so, send, please, if you do, if you are, the, we don't have a way to capture your email address when you, you, you submit the question anonymously. So, I'm relying on you. To, to make sure that you are that you get in contact because I have no way to contact you. Um, so we've got uh, some great questions. We've got there's a good mix of companies, ETFs, um, also uh, just a, a an insurance one, which is quite actually it's actually good because it will save people a lot of money. So um, Drew, I know you love this sort of stuff. So this is WA uh, one at Whiplash two at Stability question mark. That's the the questioner. Can you guys look into WA1 resources? I'm getting whiplash as a new investor, trying to understand the halts and suspensions of a junior company like this. I have no idea what it does, Drew, so I'm leaning on you here, mate. I had a look on the website, and it's future-facing commodities. That's the that's what it says? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Great. So it looked like gold. It's rough to start. Carbonite or carbonatite. I'm not sure. I'm not a geologist. Um, <laughs> but I mean, the first thing I see, and this is pretty, you know, pessimistic and skeptical, is you're talking about future-facing commodities, which are essentially the same commodities that we've always used, but they now get used in batteries. So it feels like, uh, like I mean, part of being on a listed company is you have to market yourself and market your business and attract capital to help you fund your your project. So it's not unlike any other microcap mining company it's exploring so it needs money to put holes in the ground and then needs money to build mines and that's why you're seeing this share price runs announcement capital raising to fund it share price runs again capital raising and you're going to see this for a while until you work out whether it's a production company like pilbara turned into or if it is just another tenement of mine so i summarize it as it's a lottery for a lot of these um Mm. without knowing much about geology uh, and it's whether you can ever ever scale or be taken over at some point. So the company was recently suspended um, from official quotation. Then it came out with a Prezo, did a cap raising of $10 million. Firm commitments received under a placement to raise $10 million at $2, a 13% premium to the last traded price. Um, funding will be used to advance the recent Looney and P2 Neobium re <laughs> mineralized carbon... Ni- Carbonated discoveries. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going. Yeah, the um, beep, beep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, we shouldn't laugh because this is a whiplash situation. Um, but I, <laughs> I guess the thing is, Drew and I, we need to get a geologist. And we need Luke to walk in the studio and answer some of these questions. But um, the reality is, like, this is a very, very, very early stage company. Uh, even though the shares according to Google Finance here, uh, went from basically nothing. So they went from 14 cents to $1.93 and so we're up 700%. It's still, according to this, a, 50, a 60 mil market cap. It's a tiny business. $10 million is not enough to monetize anything. There's multiple futures for these junior uh, resource companies and a lot of them are not the future that you want. Some of them get taken over because they strike literal gold and then others... <laughs> Of the hosts, the few that get through will actually go into production. Mm. It's very much like it is like a lottery ticket. I agree, and I don't. We don't mean to sound cynical. It just is the, the facts of the matter. And so, position size. Yeah, you've just got to keep these. The thing is, these are the things that get people into investing. I think we've talked about this before. 
these are the stories that get people into the stock market when this is not what the stock market yeah. should be used for. Um, there should be like a separate market, which is like- Marketing machine. Yeah. You, you come out with a really good prezo, you promise someone um, on like a, a website uh, something and then do a capital raising, just keep funding your salaries basically. And, you know, for the most part, um, I, I can't even really repeat the question as- name because it's a bit it's more of the question in itself but uh one at whiplash two at stability i think just be careful with these types of things and um position size like sub one percent for things like this unknown so that's a good question unfortunately um yeah it's it's painful so diversify 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 please uh next question is a really good one sandy toes from bowen fnq I'm not swearing, that's how it's said. Um, I invested in Prosper PGL a few years back, thinking that they had a huge potential being an online lending facility for small business, with a, which I had a long-term view in mind. Understanding the difficulty in some in small companies raising funds in the current climate is difficult. However, the company did make a small profit this year, but the stock has fallen through the floor in recent weeks. Can you provide thoughts on keep on keeping this still as a small long-term investment or cut losses and move on? Thank you. It kind of falls into the same period as BNPL and all the other companies that popped up at the same time, didn't it? Mm. Listings and raising capital in a hyper-competitive market. Um, I think it. I find it challenging. We run small businesses, uh, but this sector is so aggressive and and is. pricing is so much. And one of the big, I think they said their originations were up sixty percent, so they're growing fast. But the challenge is their losses were something like four to six percent of their book, I think, or that's what they're aiming for in losses. So that means essentially if you have 4% losses, your entire profit for a company that's trying to scale and not make much money, your whole profit's gone, um, which is can be a massive hit. So you, you look at the company and it's aggressive. So net interest margin of 29%. Jeez. That's like payday <laughs> loans size. Yeah. And then uh, it's hard to find the interest rate and the interest rates for like 19% for, for, for businesses. So it's short-term essentially 12 to three-year lending, I think, uh, but in the market where everyone's trying to lend, both private and public companies are trying to lend to small businesses at those sort of interest rates. So I'd almost, I mean, I'm, I can't really talk because I'm holding zip still. Um, <laughs> if you've got something better to do with it, move on. Okay. Opportunity cost, <laughs> opportunity cost knocks on the front door. And it's just, yeah. And in this environment where cost of capital is getting higher for these companies, it's all about how much, how the cost they have to pay for the capital they can then lend. Yeah. That cost of capital is going up. So you're getting squeezed on less losses. You're getting squeezed on uh, probably your interest rate if there's more competition and you're getting squeezed on your costs. So I remember uh, I had Luke, uh, that's right, early pay. I had an early pay on the sh- uh, Luke Winchester from. Uh, Mary Weather Capital on the show talked about early pay as a business that's kind of solving this problem in a different way. Um, early pay sounds like before pay, it's totally different. Um, it sounds like after pay, it's different to that as well. But it's just got a name that says early pay. And I would encourage you to go and check out this business. This is a business that's profitable. And uh, FNQ, just go and compare, like put these side by side and see which business to you sounds like it's a more reliable business model. Like context probably helps here. I've heard of Prosper being used a lot by small businesses. Yeah. Like I have seen, I've heard of it and it appears on a lot of those like websites that are supporting small businesses. Yeah. Because we've got the business podcast now. These are like a lot of people are saying like, what, which ones do you go with and how do you use them and whatever? And they're all different. Um, 
you know, there's invoice financing, there's financing of equipment, there's- And none of it's actually new. No. It's just same old financing, slightly easier. Yeah. Probably the early pay example here is probably the best example of a platform that tries to automate everything. Yeah. So go and check out early pay. Um, really interesting business. Also listed on the ASX under the ticker symbol EPY. That's E-P-Y-F-N-Q. That's the one for you. So- um, Really interesting. As Drew said, just keep an eye on that uh, net interest margin and uh, that also then plays on the other side. If you've got a wide net interest margin, chances are you're going to have large provisions because yep. you're, you're taking a lot from these businesses. And you know, anywhere there's uneconomic profits, you know, significant profits, mm-hmm. then there's always going to be more competition coming. Yep. Afterpay saw it. Zip saw it. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about Zip. Um, so this is... <laughs> this. <laughs> This next question is is quite- (laughs) This is a quiet dig at me, isn't it? (laughs) No, I think it's good. Um, The question that gave the name of, I wish I was as smart as you. I like this. Now, (laughs) this is a bit that I find hilarious. On this week's episode, Raymond said he had two super funds, SMSF to make money and an industry fund for the cheap insurances. How does that work? Do you make contributions to both? or just whack a small profit in an industry fund to qualify for the insurance and the rest into the SMSF. Brilliant idea, by the way. Raymond, over to you. <laughs> so- Drew equals smart. <laughs> Drew, <laughs> Drew is very smart. Um, no, so question a deal. deal I mean, it might be crazy. I'm not sure. Deal but- listener, Raymond, a <clears throat> former analyst at RAS, now at CCZ Equities yeah. in Sydney, um, he did appear on the podcast six or so months ago. Wonderful <laughs> to follow on Twitter as well. Uh, but- w- it was Drew that said this. So, Drew, you have a, an industry fund. Yes, and an SMSF. And an SMSF. So, I mean, as a financial advisor, we've probably found that one of the most challenging things to do is get insurance for people. It's part of the reason we don't do it anymore, yeah. um, or we don't do a lot of it. Uh, it's also be- risky to give advice on. Yeah. And it takes a significant amount of work because you have to go through underwriting, you have to go through applications, and it takes hours and hours of an advisor's work, um, or advisor's time. Uh, but one part, and we I think you talked about group insurance last week, was that mm-hmm. industry funds are able to negotiate competitive insurance policies because they have millions of members. So you can essentially get a reasonable level of insurance, I think two to three mil that I have at a reasonable cost without underwriting. So you don't have to do medicals or anything like that as long as you're a reasonably healthy person. You're not lying on your um, insurance yeah. questionnaire, of course. Uh so uh, I thought that was, I've always had an in, a portion in an industry fund like everyone did because you were defaulted into it at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've tended to leave, have continued, continued to have contributions paid into there because there was some legislation that came in that said if you stop contributing or actively having capital in your su- in your super fund, it would be Canceled. closed or sent to the tax office to yep. to re uh, to. For then you for you to go and track down again, uh, so it was essentially hold yeah have contributions paid into there, and then at regular intervals every six months, depending on what your contributions are, um, transfer that into the SMSF because it's actually significantly easy to transfer from a industry fund via MyGov than an SMSF hmm. because an SMSF you t- tend to have to prepare a rollover statement and recalculate the value of your super fund with an accountant and an actuary or an auditor, hmm. which comes at a cost, so. Wait, wait, so you're saying if you do this situation <coughs> like, you're, like you've got going on, you transfer, you you pay your wage into your super fund, let's say it's like industry fund, so say it's like- Contributions, was, yeah. Contributions, like, yeah. Yeah, what am I saying? Um, and then <coughs> say it's like 
Aussie Super Rest, whatever. And when it gets to forty grand or something, then it push like, it back to ten. Then yeah, then you tip it back. Then you tip the excess into um, the SMSF. Yep. Because that's easier because the SMSF is already set up in your MyGov portal. Yep. Just bang. Yep. Send some across. And you have to do a, a statement that confirms the c- components of each super uh, super transfer. And doing it for an SMSF will take. You have to get your accountant to do that, obviously. Yep. Um, so it's easy to roll the other way. As yeah. in like concessional, non-concessional, like the- un- Tax-free, taxable. Yeah. And you have to recalculate as of the day that you're yep. doing the rollover as well. So it tends to be easier the other way. I mean, then the S, why, did, why do you have both? Because I can basically buy anything I want in an SMSF. Use a platform. I can buy gold. I can buy, I think I own Walt Disney, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I don't own Zip in my super fund. <laughs> so okay, I can man. use the losses on that somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you can buy anything. And a lot of things you can't buy in um, in a industry fund. Um, so let's just fill in a bit of the blanks here just for people that are playing along at home and thinking, what the heck are they talking about? So when you, when you, you need a certain amount of money to, you want a certain amount of money to set up an SMSF unless you do one of those ones through like stake or one of those platforms that allow you to do it for next to nothing, um, that gives you more flexibility. However, I want to highlight one thing about industry funds in particular. So these are like the big ones. You see those people with the weird hands on TV, you know, compare the pair, all that sort of stuff. Chris in our office came up with that. Oh, really? Did Chris come up with that? Yeah. Oh, God. I don't want to say that too loud. Chris, if you're listening. Jeez, I'm going to have to go right there. <laughs> <laughs> Apologize. Um, so, we're good on you, Chris. Um, so, <laughs> so, anyway, um, if, if you use an industry super fund, a lot of them have in-house brokerage. So, what I mean by that is like you can go into your member portal and they have like an SMSF Lite. Yep. And what it is, is you still pay like your 10 or 20 bucks in brokerage, but you can have control over what you invest in. So you don't need to go and set up a full SMSF if you don't want to. And basically the way it works is you pay a fee for that access, for that like little portal, um, but you can invest in most things in the ASX 300. And I think you can invest in ETFs and, and those types of things as well. Yep. So it's like a buffet where you can have a fair bit of control without the admin of an SMSF. What Drew is referring to is you can also have, in, in Drew's structure, he's got an industry fund alongside an SMSF. You can just have two industry funds or two super funds that are like not managed by you. So you could have one fund that has your insurance if you don't want to switch funds, for example. Like yep. a lot of people shouldn't switch funds if they need their insurance, if they're high risk or pre-existing medical conditions, all that stuff. And then you can have another one, which is the ultra low cost investing one. Yeah. So I just use Aussie Super at the moment. But I have selected my own investment options. Yeah. Um, and when the time comes, I will look at an SMSF as an alternative. Yeah. What I would say is one final thing. There are benefits. If you have never done this before, you can only get life or death insurance inside a uh, super fund. You can get TP, uh, TPD in, in there. It's like total permanent disability. And you can get income protection. But usually with some limits. Yep. What you want to make sure is <clears throat> if you are put using those as your insurance, make sure that you have that minimum balance and you are adding because there have been, as Drew said, rules passed where it can basically close down on you. Yeah. And then you don't have any insurance and you didn't realize. Yeah. And I upped my insurance a big way when I switched across to Australian Super. Yeah. Now you said that there's no medical up to a certain point, like up you just said, yep. but there is somewhere in between there, there is a light questionnaire about health. Yeah. And that might be like five or 10 questions about like, are you a smoker? Just don't ask me this week. <laughs> yeah. Are you, uh, do you drink often? <laughs> How many drinks? No, no. But it's like very basic questions where you don't need to go through a medical. But we always caution you, if you are going to change super funds, 
make sure you understand the insurance before you switch because yeah, it's particularly if you've got a pre-existing condition, um, just keep that in mind. Great question because that could save you thousands of dollars. Obviously, your super fund pays the bills. I just be pay extra money into my super fund to cover the extra cost. Um, okay, so I'll winning win your future, which is good, good one. I see what you did there. You uh, incorporated my name into I'll winning your future. If you had to take one ASX company and focus on immediate three to five directional changes to turn it into a multi-bagger such as capital allocation, buybacks, cost of sales, spin-offs, et cetera, what would you pick and what would you focus on? And this is, I feel like this is like a philosophical question, like just a thought starter, kind of, is this, I feel like this is the same person. I don't know who it is. <laughs> the CEO one? Yeah, the CEO yeah. one. Yeah. I feel like this is, I feel like it might be Matadura, um, Canadian Aussie. I feel like it could be you. If it's not you, sorry to single single you out. What would you go with? So a company on maybe the ASX or globally, Drew, where oh, if you could globally. take control and you could make three to five changes, what's the company's and what would you do? Or do you want me to go first? I went pretty boring and kind of said the same one. I said oh, <laughs> for really? the CEOs. I just see there's two. There's a company called Iris that does, and it's more because it annoys the. Can I swear? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Noise the shit out of me. Yep. Uh, what does that, it do? What does Iris do for people that don't know? So for us, it's the customer relationship management system and portfolio management system used by 60% of financial advisors in the country. Okay. So it's like, and probably uh, outside of insurance, the single biggest expense and and obviously staff, yep. um, the single busy, biggest expense you'll have. It costs something like $50,000 a year. Really? Um and so, it's and it's incredible. Like it can do everything: modeling, help you implement recommendations. We run our quarterly reviews for 180 clients through it um, every every quarter. Uh, but it's just so clunky. Wait, so why wouldn't? Okay, I don't. I haven't used this before. Why wouldn't you just use something else if it's so expensive? Like why wouldn't incumbency, you? Incumbency. Just- the amount of data that's already on there, even though it's not the best, it's still quite good. You know, the, the the ability to have data feeds from as many places. What is going on over here? Got <laughs> some, sorry, that was me. We've got some ESPN going yeah, on in the background. Thanksgiving, sorry, mate. I was watching the NFL at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Technically not watching. But, yeah. Uh, and I think it's, well, it's like incumbency and monopolistic position or, or it's not even oligopolistic. Uh, but they're just... You almost need to read, like, if you've got so much, like, they just uh, increase prices by 8% because they can. Yeah. Uh, you know, costs are going up, sure, but 8% and and no one can really say anything about it. Uh, but it almost needs a rethink and a rebuild from the ground up. But it's why would you do it if you've got such a strong position and such market power? Uh, so that's one thing I saw. Um, and Why the, wouldn't you just switch to, like, premium? Can premium or net wealth do that? They only do part of it. So they only do, like, the administration? They do investment part. We got... We got file notes we've got you know we have to keep track of consents and clients signing off on us receiving fees so we we control that on there we have notes of every single meeting we've ever been to every piece of communication that goes to a client is all recorded along with portfolios on the same system as well so, so it's basically got you by the short and curlies i think, <laughs> they could increase I think prices the challenge 800%. is <laughs> you got no choice <laughs> if you're listening to this iris <laughs> the ch- you probably got their ceo on before uh no, I haven't. So Andrew Walsh, I can see here on Google. And there's a lot of Never competitors, but none of them can do as much. Uh, and I mean, naturally, they sh- if I was a CEO, I'd just start buying up some of the competitors and integrating them and, and kind of just maybe even refreshing it because you don't want to make a jump 
us into a new one, then you're essentially going to have to run two two of these at the same time while you're while you're onboarding the other one. So, uh, and then expand. You know, they do all the Iris data. Yeah, I've seen that. And Iris trading um, and all the back office there. I'm sure they could compete against platforms and even potentially ASX at some point. Yeah, so they're on there. Uh, just so you know, Iris is yeah, ASX listed under the ticker symbol IRE. Uh, it's compounded pretty bloody well. Not like an all-star performer, but it's up uh, 300% since the year 2000. That's not including dividends, just a quick chuck into Google Finance there. Um, I have come across it numerous times because I think Iris is what powers things like Ausbiz as well. Yeah. Um, like a lot of the news channels use it as an alternative to like Bloomberg and those types of things for data. I didn't realize how how much they had you. <laughs> well, it's incredibly important. Like when you've got something that can do that, even if it's really annoying sometimes to use it, yeah. it's still that good. Yeah, right. Okay. And so did you say you had two or is that- I had the ASX, which is pretty boring too. What would you have done? What would you do? If, fix, you, if, you could, if I could just go, here's the keys to ASX, what would you change? I feel like M funds could be, could be significant. And that could change the way that people trade funds, stocks, ETFs for the entire country. It yep. could catch up to what's happening in other parts. So M funds, somehow I think the because of the monopolistic position of some of the brokers in Australia, they never took off. Yeah. But it's an ability to essentially hold a managed fund or a mutual fund, whatever you want to call it, alongside an ETF and a stock under a HIN. Makes, it makes complete sense. That means you don't you don't necessarily need a platform. You can get consolidated reporting and everything's always updated where you want it to. Mm. Yeah, I think the big, as you just touched on, the big issue with M funds was that like Comsec blocked them. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I didn't want to say that, but. <laughs> <laughs> because the brokers don't didn't want, not just Comsec, there's other brokers. <laughs> <laughs> there are other, like there are reasons that our industry sometimes can't move forward because of the powerful forces in the value chain. Yeah. And um, some of those are, you know, well, we offer funds, so we're not going to offer that person, that company's funds either, um, which is, yeah, the old pay-to-play type thing. But um, interesting, ASX, yeah, I mean, just even changing away from bloody paper, paper statements is so yeah. important, and thank heavens they did. That's the biggest success over the past five years. Um, so return on investment of Iris, which is interestingly, um, ret oh, yeah, return on investment for the last five years has averaged 9%, which is lower than I thought, but- Revenue has grown over five years, CAGR at 9% as well. So it's just like a- How much they increased. That's how much they increased the prices. <laughs> I think the challenge for them is that the advice industry is so small. Yeah, it's, it's got smaller in that time. 24 to 16,000 people. So yeah. I, I understand why you're not investing more money in it because it's not a big total addressable market. Yeah, fair enough. Um, my answer to this question uh, would, would have been pretty boring. And it, it is actually pretty boring. No, it would have been. It is. It's not- doesn't uh, start with a D, does it? I love- double. We don't talk about double. <laughs> don't speak too loudly their office is like 20 meters from our office Shit, did i just say that <laughs> voice recognition too so. yeah. they're going to stand outside from now on and just wait for me to come out <laughs> um anyway so <laughs> actually I, I was outside the other day and they did come out <laughs> it's like shit i had the rest logo <laughs> i'm not joking it happened um so anyway um <clears throat> Love this question. Uh, I love the question last week. I really like these thought-provoking ones because we can just take it in any direction. But um, I really did have a tough time about like what would I do. But I think like this has been <clears throat> talked about a lot. Uh, Soul Pats and Brickworks 
with their huge cross ownership. I think they were taken to court by like perpetual or something. Um, because they've got this huge cross holding and it would be fair to say if you broke them up, that they would be worth more as separate businesses. But they're, they are the partnerships work brilliantly for them. The other thing I thought about was like, you know, Magellan's having a bit of issues lately. Um, and <clears throat> for five, 10 years, their growth has been almost entirely dependent on their global equity strategy. Yeah. But they have this brilliant infrastructure business. And early funds, which they bought a little while ago, is really interesting too. So, I mean, I'm not advocating for this, but if you broke that up, or at least, and I think they're trying to do this, like bring in the multi-brand strategy. Simplify. Yeah. You could do a lot there. There's like a lot, lot of embedded value in that business. I had them as one as well, but- Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh. Um, <laughs> I can see it there. You got it in the notes. Any fund oh. manager. Reduce strategies, <laughs> cut fees. <laughs> I wasn't going to release that. <laughs> um, but it's, I mean, you, you're being, you, there's quite a few funds closing down at the moment. Yeah. Like every week someone else is, is shutting down because either the inflows have slowed down, performance has struggled, and it's becoming more costly to- to operate them, so mm. and everyone's whether you like it or not, fees are reducing. It's why Vanguard, you know, launched their own product because they were getting paid what four basis points by a pension fund, where they can go and charge yeah. fifteen to, to normal investors. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think naturally the fees are reducing, and a lot of these companies probably became more complicated as they uh, in you know a decade long bull market. Uh, what I look for in businesses, uh, particularly like as an like as an investor, what I look for is the things that you can't see. So, like things that most people don't see, I should say. And the way to identify that is to look at a business that has pretty strong fu fundamentals. It's got cash. It's growing. But one of the things that's really interesting, and Kevin Fong, who's now at Maven Funds, and I spoke about this a lot, is you basically want a business that aggregates. Yeah. If you have a business that aggregates something, could be eyeballs, could be attention, could be industry, regular, whatever it is, that gives you an extraordinary amount of optionality because you can be like, okay, I've got strong fundamentals. We're going to do this other thing because we've got eyeballs. And um, there are numerous businesses in our industry that have that. Um, you know, I saw it up close to the Motley Fool. And that's basically the, the idea behind RASC. If you think about what we do is we basically aggregate eyeballs and yeah. ears. And from here, then we can get bigger guests. We can grow in other things. Um, and so- I, I look for that in markets. Like, um, I, I can't really say too much because they're sponsors of the show, but InvestSmart is listed and so is SelfWealth. And I see those two businesses as financial businesses and they have huge audiences. Yeah. And I just think that's really interesting because that gives you possibilities. So if you just look for businesses like that that have possibilities, I think, yeah, I'm not the, I am definitely not, a, I would never be the manager that comes in. I'm not the cleanup guy. Downgrade, downgrade, downgrade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry. You're never going to last long if you have to start with downgrades. Yeah, that's it. So, um, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, okay, good question. Love the question. Don't forget, Drew, you've got to vote on the, the best name. Uh, get Just because oh, it has your name in there. <laughs> this is... Uh, okay, we've got a few questions left here, but this one is... Uh, <laughs> no, he's talking about a chart. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, here we You're go. giggling like a schoolboy. <laughs> okay, here we go. Ready? This question comes from get it up and to the right. Um, is it a good idea? It could be a shame, mate. Just, let's, be, let's be real. Uh, is it a good idea to have more than one of each type of index ETF, e.g. ASX 200, 300 index, to reduce the risk that a single provider could increase fees or shut down the fund slash ETF in the future? Now, 
I might, I actually reached out to Blair Hannon, who's the head of investment strategy at GlobalX, uh, one of our sponsors of the Australian Finance Podcast. And I said, I'll let you, Drew, answer the question about like would what happens with an ETF provider, but maybe I'll cut to Blair because I wanted him to explain to everyone what happens behind the scenes of an ETF. So not the not the ETF provider itself, but what goes on to make it the fee that it is. And here's what he had to say, and I'll quote him verbatim. There is a range of costs associated with running ETFs in general, uh, but in general, due to the growing size of the overall market, increase in the number of ETFs and ETF mm-hmm. issuers and the scale of running an ETF over, say, an active fund with single stock picks, we have seen ETFs cost fall over the past 20 years. I am not aware, though I can't unequivocally say, that an ETF has seen an increase in the fee, where fee cuts are reasonably common in the ETF space as competition continues to rise. Then he breaks down the costs of an ETF. Index costs are certainly a contributor to the overall ETF costs, which are built into the net asset value or NAV, and they are charged on a daily basis, as is the listing and exchange fees, custody fees, and more. Yet as mentioned, with the scale of having billions under management, many established ETF providers are in a better position to reduce fees over increased fees, especially in this ultra-competitive space. ETF fees are also quite transparent in comparison to other areas of investment. For example, index tracking ETFs don't have a performance fee like many active funds, so there's no surprises at the end of the year, end quote. Now, that's a pretty comprehensive answer. What do you think? It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean- oh, That's your answer? It doesn't really yeah. matter. Yeah, okay. The fee, yeah. Okay. I mean, fees, all he's saying in uh, a long way around is that there's a, it's a hyper-competitive market mm. and it's unlikely fees will go up. It's not like some of the pension funds that- bought more assets so the fees went up the, mm. the prior year and this it, it's getting to the point in australia where if one fee one one goes up you just buy the one next to it yep. uh, there's so many options usually at least two options for the same for a very similar thing at the moment so yep. i wouldn't be worried about diversifying on that basis uh costs are still going to trend down um and then the other one would be don't worry about diversifying uh if something shuts down, we've seen a few shut down. It's simple. It's an ETF. It's a feed-through entity, essentially. Mm. You technically own, in I think most cases, all the shares in there. So worst case, shuts down, you get your money back. They say they're going to shut down, you sell it on market. I wouldn't worry about an ETF provider going broke and you're not getting your money back. I think some of the crypto ones shut down, didn't go broke, but shut down and just distributed the share of the assets anyway. Yep. So that's good. Good question because it is uh, something that people come up against. Uh, we'll probably see most fundies drop their fees in response to that. Uh, clearing house exorbitant spend suspended. That's a ch- in brackets chess says as a long-term passive investor chasing beta through low-cost equity index ETFs. What other low-cost beta investments are out there other than equities, None. i.e., real estate, <laughs> fixed interest? Um, commodities, venture capital, other, and then they say, and how do they fit into a long-term passive investor's portfolio? I don't think there's any apart from (laughs) what I started to talk. I mean, you're looking at property, infrastructure, those sort of sectors. Uh, I said the next next rare area you go to is subsectors, but then you're not making a passive decision. So if you're thinking like commodities, Mm. banking, uh, lithium, well, that's not a passive core strategy anymore. That's a, a, a sectoral allocation, and I don't think that's really a 
not what you're looking for if you're looking for passive beta exposures. So passive, you're saying passive for the core, and yeah. then if you're doing that other stuff, that's where you're making an active decision whether you go. Very much. Whether you use an ETF, whether you use a managed fund, whether you use a lick, a direct stock, that's an active decision. So don't even bother chasing beta down there. If you're doing, yeah, exactly. Yep. And just for um, everyone playing along at home and they're thinking, beta, what does that mean? <laughs> um, so beta is just eff effectively the market. Yeah. You it get, could be the MSCI. Yeah. So like ASX 200, MISCI All World, like you get the market. Yeah. And that's what we Bloomberg say, beta. Yeah. Because there's a thing in finance called beta, which is if it equals one, it means you get the market return. Yeah. So that's a beta of one. So we co just call it beta. And if you're an active, if you, well, I mean, we've got a pretty simple saying in the office, which is beta is free. Yeah. So you can get the market pretty much for free, whether it's an ETF or we talked about Macquarie in the past. Yeah. Uh, and you want to pay for alpha. So anything like an ETF that is in a single sector, your beta is either going to be significantly higher or lower than one. Yeah. And that's, that's why you start to think about it as active or yeah. alpha, and alpha is obviously outperformance over the over the market. Yeah, uh, Eve actually asked me this week on Self Wealth Live. I do it every Wednesday night, six pm. Be there um, th about Macquarie True Index. Yeah, uh, and we we you talked about this recently. How you can get the ASX two hundred return for zero cost. Yeah, Macquarie's gonna love us talking about that. By the way, <laughs> I would love the product. There you go. Beta's free. Like, why should you pay for the average return? Next minute will be you and Shamara on the front page of Macquarie. <laughs> Having lunch. <laughs> yeah, down in Tassie at a brewery. Um, so, yeah. Well, they don't like it because they, uh, I mean, they probably do. So, essentially, it's a swap contract is how they do it. Yeah, right. Okay, because we're going to talk about that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, you don't use passive for anywhere where there's value arbitrage, basically. Yeah. So, you would look at things like global small caps, Aussie small caps, unlisted assets. These are all things which- probably lend themselves to more active management. Yeah. The, I guess, the, what What about, okay, I'm going to change this question a bit, Drew, catch you off guard here while you drink your green smoothie. It looks like it's good for your liver. Someone's got my credit card and I'm seeing all these payments come through. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> for my party, I know. <laughs> Interesting. Um, what about bonds? Yep. So, obviously, when I say bonds, that's like a gigantic market, but- what would you do? You prefer passive or active? I think I've made my view on interest rates well known. Drew is uh, <laughs> this one. <laughs> uh, well, I think pretty much every public market exposure can be built with a passive core, and our view is that you start as a passive core and then add pay fees for true active management outside that. So, I would have said three years ago, I wouldn't have touched passive. Bonds. Bonds and fixed income solely because we expected interest rates to increase and higher interest rates is bad for existing bonds, as we've seen, down 15, 20%. Mm. But at this point and in a you know, in a more normal, call it normal, I feel like it's more normal environment where interest rates aren't at zero, then yeah, I'd, I'm, I'd still be comfortable with a passive core in long duration bonds. Long, okay, so you just qualified that at the end and that's exactly what I was going to say. So long duration bonds, meaning- in English, that just means government bonds. Government, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, in government bonds, yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. But when you move further down the credit spectrum, you have to go- High yield. You have to go like- um, Floating active. rate. Yeah. yeah. It gets like you can buy floating rate Australian bank bonds. You can buy hybrids as a as an index as well. Next Ponzi scheme to fall, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which one? The banks. All of them. It's a conspiracy <laughs> Let's throw that out there. <laughs> 
But it's still an active decision because you're then making a call away from the benchmark and saying, I want more floating. I want more exposure to a single sector in the banks. Uh, I mean, Australian bonds are essentially state, federal government, state government banks would be 90% of the benchmark. So we, we look at it, we can basically buy an ETF to be the core of every sleeve of our portfolio, floating rate, fixed rate, domestic equities, global equities, real assets, commodities. Yep. Like it. Good question because um, it's relevant to basically everyone. Um, okay, we're going to move. We're going to have to move quickly through these next questions. So what we're going to do, Drew? I reckon we need a one and a half minute uh, timer on the, these questions because they're great questions. Okay, but I we can just be um, broke by the time. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So this is the question. Last stand at Chin Chin. Obviously, we're above the Chin Chin restaurant here in Melbourne. Have you ever had a pause for a pause moment, but choosing between two stocks? And they go on to say that they could have bought Linus Rare Earths, but they bought Australian Pharmaceuticals, and Linus just went to the moon, and uh, they bought API and it did nothing and got taken over. So Margaret has been somewhat tempered by Pilbara's success, which they also own. Could have had two miners if I followed my heart over my head. Is investment sometimes gut feel, with a solid grounding of research? Uh, thanks, guys. Great podcast. Been listening for a few years. Well, thanks, Chin Chin. Over you, Drew. Is he quoting Puff Daddy in here too? Really? Was that you that quoted Puff Daddy? Bad Me. Boys for Life? Bad Boys for Life. Yeah, that's... um. Well, yeah, it could be Puff Daddy. It could be uh, Will Smith, you know, in Bad Boys. Or maybe it was Martin Lawrence. I don't know. But either way, Puff sounds pretty good. <laughs> no, my nickname was taken from Pete Diddy as well. Oh, yeah, well, it would. Yeah. yeah, that's why your Twitter handle is... Uh... <laughs> D-MIDI 13. I had to change most of my handles. <laughs> okay, that's, when that's I a work up. in progress. So what would you do? Um, do you go, is some of it with your heart or is some of it with your head? I think there's a constant challenge. Uh, I think all investing is emotional and both buyers and sellers regret <laughs> is, is constant and it's the hardest part. It's, you know, there's all these assumptions, you know, capital markets theory and uh, efficient market hypothesis that says investors make rational decisions. They don't. Yep. You've seen in every crisis, even semi-crisis, ration, rationality goes out the window. Yep. Uh, the only way I think we've been successful in doing it, building a business, is essentially forcing people to get their core right which mm-hmm. means when you're making decisions like this, you've got a, either you've got a framework or when they go wrong, they're not blowing up your either your confidence or the rest of your portfolio. And it could be you have 10% in these individual stock ideas. I think you posted this week about it as well. could be 30% depending on, yeah. on what your objectives are. But you need a framework. Otherwise, you're just going to constantly look at the same stocks and be worried about the same things. And it's you know, the biggest challenge we've seen in, for a lot of people that we meet in retirement is they link the performance of their investments too closely to the amount of income or their lifestyle. And you think you've spent your entire life saving up this capital and then you're worried about what Linus or API are doing on any given day. Yeah. And that's it's hard to remove emotion, but that's what you need to do. I think there are a lot of uh, myths in investing. One of them would be that like m- most of investing is scientific. It's not. I'd say most of the work is behavioral. Yeah. Um, and yeah, one of those, I'm just going to put a bit of a note here, but one of my my biggest or strongest counter beliefs about investing is that if you are investing in individual stocks, you should probably almost encourage yourself to have losers yeah. because you're going to have them anyway. So maybe just, you know, own it, you know? I've lost money, but in order to do that, you have to take this approach of, I'm going to make a lot of investments, 
some of them are going to do really well, but many of them are going to be crap. Even the best investors only get 60 to 65% of their stock selection, right? Even mm. professional fund managers. Yeah, and that's through all of the analysis in the world, right? But the problem is a lot of people that invest that way of like, I'm going to buy these 10 interesting companies and going to lose on a lot of them. The problem is it's behavior which sends you off track. Yeah. You, you might get onto a winner, a really good business, you sell it because you're scared of it falling. You might get onto a winner that starts out really poorly and you sell it because you think, oh, you know, how bad, you know, this thing, I got it totally wrong, but then it just shoots up. And so you need two things. You need this kind of this mentality of I'm going to be an ultra long-term investor and I'm just going to ride out the waves no matter what comes. Yeah. David Gardner in the US, the Motley Fool co-founder, is the best uh, guy to follow. In that so regard. much for a minute and a half. Minute and a half. <laughs> Toasted Sanger, this is the next question. How would you invest if you were on an indexed defined benefit super pension, noting that this pension is 82% tax-free, currently 80K annual. Largest, largest difference to normal investing is that the starting point is below the taxable threshold for any returns. Toasted Sanger, this is a hell of a question. I feel like you do need a financial planner to answer this question. Um, fortunately, I have one here right in front of me who's going to answer it in less than 90 seconds. In less than 90 seconds. 80K sounds pretty good. The biggest question is what do you need? If you only need $80,000 in income and you're getting it from there, majority of it's tax-free, then, yeah, why even worry about where you're investing? Just put it in cash. Take this lowest risk government guaranteed investment. Yep. Most people either want more than 80 or they want to grow the capital for their children and beneficiaries. So the way we've, for a lot of people, we think about it is if you've got a guaranteed $80,000 in income, if you assume this is, I'm trying to get this under a minute and a half. <laughs> if you assume an interest rate or an earnings rate of, say, 5%, well, that capital is essentially worth $1.6 million. Yep. Guaranteed, not I mean not guaranteed, but that eighty thousand is guaranteed. Yeah. So if you think you got one point six million and then you your rest of your portfolio is worth one point six, well you can essentially have a fifty fifty asset allocation because uh, the nature of that income means you can view it as a low risk cash or fixed income uh, portion of your portfolio. So it allows you to take more risk in the rest of your portfolio. But I'd say again, depends what your objective is. Yep. If you only need hundred k, then put most of the rest of it in term deposits anyway. Yeah, there's not many of these defined benefit schemes around anymore. So if everyone, anyone ever recommends you get rid of it, don't. Yeah, don't. Yeah, that's that's the key thing. Is like make sure you speak to a financial advisor before, and one that doesn't always just automatically want to switch you out of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so here's another great question. We've got about three questions remaining, and we're going to be quick. Um, and this one I think may take the cake, Drew. Zip Adi Druda. <laughs> Zip Adi Druda says, "Find some other stocks that have gone down." <laughs> if you have your super, my winners. If you have your super with Vanguard, can you still include Vanguard ETFs in your core portfolio for the Aussie market, or should you change it to something like A two hundred? That's the Beta Shares ETF. So you have a bit of a diversification between ETF funds. Underlying investments are all that really matters. Okay. So yeah, I wouldn't be worried about whether it's Vanguard or iShares. I'd just be yeah. make sure you get the diversification you want. The the, the, the concern here is that or super and my personal portfolio is with Vanguard. That's what yeah. they're saying. Um, I. It's a hard one because if Vanguard goes down, I think the world's got a big problem. Um, so <laughs> it's probably not going to happen. Nah. Um, I do like to see a few different names in there just to just for whatever. Share the love. Yeah. Share the share your eight basis points of management fees. That's it. Give you know <laughs> encourage competition. Uh, the great question though because we do get that one a lot. Uh, the hot dog compounder says hello chaps. Um, I own <laughs> IVV, uh, which is the ASX listed S and P five hundred one. Currently doing a one for sixteen or one for fifteen stock split at the moment. Um, I am thinking of medium term three to five years of HNDQ 
VGAD and IHVV. These are all currency hedged ETFs. HNDQ is the NASDAQ 100, VGAD is the global MISCI, and IHVV is the S&P 500. The fees are a bit higher. Um, they already have exposure to other parts of uh, the world, like Europe, Asia, Japan, Japan, and Australia, um, uh, via non-specific hedged, non-hedged ETFs. Uh, I am aware this may take multiple years, and I'm aware US stocks may also take some time to return close to previous highs, but I'm confident enough to hold a number of years to achieve my goals. So they're basically saying... Um, should I double up with IV, IVV and IHVV or go with a more tech-focused HNDQ uh, or added, the, the added global exposure of VGAD? I would say, I'll, I'll, I'll just say, you don't need to own all three of them, to be yeah. honest. You don't need to have, personally, I don't think you need to have HNDQ, which is the NASDAQ 100 plus the S&P 500. If, unless you want more tech exposure. This is obviously only general information, but I have... Um, been through this with a lot of our members and I think that the S&P 500 accurately captures what you want from the US market. Yep. Um, if you want VGS for global exposure, you could do that instead of IHVV or you could just add the Europe on um, yep. as a separate ETF. As for currency hedging versus non-currency hedged, Drew has this great rule, and I hope it's still consistent, Drew, which is that if it's two standard deviations either side of the average for the currency- You make me sound smart, yep. Yeah, so I actually posted this on Twitter the other day. I actually posted a chart, and on our best ETFs website, I actually did this for people. I got a long-term chart, which is updated every day, and it plots two standard deviations either side for the currency. So you can see if it's near that oh, point. Good. Yep, yeah, perfect. Yeah, good tool. Yeah, and just you can just go and check that out. Maybe I'll put that in the show notes, but we were near that. Recently, yeah. So it would have made sense to get switch to um, currency hedged, yeah. But now we've gone back up again, yeah. So we're not near the two standard deviations. Close enough. Close yeah. enough. You know, I mean, you don't. Well, the big one is you don't want currency to remove all the returns that you've that you've you know achieved over a long period of time, and it can. You know, there were periods in the I think the nineties for ten years, currency removed the whole benefit of investing into the U.S. equity market. So, yep. this question to me was: Are you increasing U.S. exposure? Assume so. Yep. Um, I'd probably look for more diversification, like you said, Europe or somewhere else, rather than doubling down because there's so much overlap between the MISCI, the S&P, and the NASDAQ anyway. Yep. Um, I'd be more likely to say switch some IVV into IHVV, make a, not a big call, but hedge some of that currency risk and then add something else. Yep. Cool. Uh, quick fire again. We've got Ben Graham's Wash Basin. Apologies if, if any of this has been covered before. I'm interested in quality ETFs. What are your thoughts on the QUAL or Qual ETF and VVLU? Um, am I right to be more interested in quality ETFs versus bog standard <laughs> index ETFs? And the third part of this question is, I believe these ETFs are in hedge. I like to think of myself as a long-term investor. Does hedging really matter? Is now the op- an opportune time given uh, where the currency sits? So maybe we'll take that in reverse. Currency hedging, yes or no? I think it matters at the extremes. Okay. So when the Aussies at hard dollar ten or the Aussies at fifty five cents, that's when it matters. Most of the time, you're either better off being fully unhedged or just fifty fifty. Don't make a bet. Yep. Good point. I like that. Uh, am I right to be more interested in quality ETFs over bog standard ETFs? I think just generally, assume you're building a reasonably coreish portfolio, then you know quality is always going to stand out and be important particularly and i think it's seen to be positive in an environment like this where return or the economy is becoming more variable so um i wouldn't suggest your core is going to be quality though you probably you know if you bog standard index that's going to be your core and then you're trying to tilt that towards styles so quality is a style similar to income and size 
mm. and you're, you're making a tilt to a type of company. Mm-hmm. So I think they can work together. Yep, agreed. Um, and qual ETFs, v, like QUAL versus VVLU, quality ETF, uh, I quite like this ETF, it's from Vanek, uh, 300 stocks, globally diversified, quality focus, low debt, um, consistent earnings. VVLU is Vanguard's quote unquote active strategy, which focuses on, um, if I'm not mistaken, I thought that was low value. I thought that was um, value. Very, yeah, yeah. I yeah think, not a quality ETF. And I th- personally, I think quality is easier to, to track on fundamental ratios. Yeah. Versus value. Yeah, which could be anything. Yeah. So value can be a low PE, but usually there's a low PE for a reason. And the risk of value is you end up getting a lot of cyclical companies um, that are that are probably poor quality as well. So Yeah. And one of the things that happens, just so you know, we've had Tobias Carlyle on the show before. He talked about value versus quality, and he found in his research that value wins. But one of the things that happens with some value funds, just so you know, is you get a lot of turnover. Yeah. Because basically the 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 consideration for the ETF building the portfolio is is it under is it like low value yes include it is it not exclude it and valuations can change quickly and the point is that when you get a lot of turnover inside a portfolio you get more tax events so keep that in mind too performance is very similar uh, you could probably blend the two together because they're quite different yeah uh, Kui Rady then says hi gents big fan for global small caps you previously mentioned. Rather than just buying the index, that may not be the best option. Could you suggest some reasonably active managed funds? And we're not going to tell you, we're not going to give you a recommendation here, uh, Kui Rady then, but what we will do is we'll just give you some names. Just go and look at them yourself, read them, um, and study them for a while. I'll give you one, which is Fairlight, Fairlight Asset Management. Yep. Met Tom? Nick, Nick, Nick Cregan. Nick Cregan. There's Tom, Tom there too, yeah. yeah. Uh, Ozbill has a Global Smalls and, Bell, and Ned Bell. Tobias, Tobias Bucks, Bucks yep. and Simon Wood and Ned Bell. Runs a global smid, so smaller mid cap global strategy. Ned Bell. Ned a- Bell. Ad- Bell Asset Management. Oh, I was, yeah. okay. I was, I was, okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure what you meant there, but yep. So we've got Fairlight, Osbill, Bell Asset Management. Good question because we do talk about global small caps a lot. There's a video on the RAS YouTube with Nick Cregan and another one with Tobias Buck. So if you are interested in hearing more about how they think about small caps, go and check that out. Two more questions to go, Drew. Sam Bankman fried harem. <laughs> harem. Harem? Sounds Sam, like a day my friends, Sam. one of my friends would make up. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Drew's mate. Um, this is a really Hi, quick- Dan. <laughs> we can We can ask this one really quickly and answer it. Switching my core portfolio to dividend-focused ETFs, question mark, is there a risk of reducing diversification and leading to long-term reduction in capital growth? For example, if I switched from VAS to VHY, obviously, we're going to answer this from a general financial information stance only. Thoughts on dividend-only ETFs in the core for Aussie equities? What are your thoughts? Yes, for VHY, but not for anything, not for the others. Respectfully disagree. Okay, so <laughs> we're talking about just core Aussie equities here. Yep. I would assume that someone has still some small cap exposure somewhere else and yep. they have global equities. Now, the VHY ETF has 70 to 80 positions, which I think is reasonably diversified. Not great, but I think it's reasonably well diversified. And you harvest franking credits. So if you're in a particular stage of life, not too bad. What's your respectfully disagreeing on, with me on? I see the threat of momentum and, you know, companies uh, yeah. delivering energy. really good dividends and yeah you can end up having coal miners or you're going to have energy companies and very cyclical businesses i know vanguard tries to manage that quite a bit but in in general i'm always wary of the momentum that comes with that high yield focus particularly as you call i mean the asx isn't that well diversified on its own so if you if it's less diversified than that you you want to be careful 
Okay. That's actually a good point. Yeah. Um, we don't agree on everything. We don't agree on everything. But I like I don't have a VHY as a core for any of our strategies. So it is, I mean, it is a core in our one of our models for RAS core, but it's on the retirement focus side and there's still focus to other equities. So you wouldn't have just one ETF for Aussie shares. That's what I mean to say. You'd have some other exposure, but this, I think this could, in place of VAS, you might use it. So interesting. Yeah. Um, under the hoodie. Hi, lads. I'd like to know more about how indices for thematic and ESG ETFs are created and how they are monetized. Seems to be an explosion in the not-so-passive ETF space lately and trying to understand what's in the ETF better. What? <laughs> Wait, I think maybe I made a mistake. <laughs> so, basically, what's in the not-so-passive ETF space? Um, this is a question around the benchmark. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, there's groups that will essentially build a benchmark for you and then you pay them to keep running that benchmark and track it. I think Sol Active is one that's quite popular in yeah. all the niche sectors. Um, and they're not passive. They're, they're a made-up benchmark that changes regularly. Hmm. We um so we talk about this a lot in the office. Um, disagreements and agreements over ESG and what is ESG and what is an ESG. And for the most part, a lot of the ETFs that we have in Australia under the hoodie are what we call negative screening, where they just remove companies that are in sin stock industries, so things like tobacco, gambling, pornography, armaments, that sort of stuff. But you also have positive screening with some of the beta shares ETFs where they actually look for climate leaders and ethical leaders, but you do pay a fee for that. You have to be very careful of greenwashing, of course. Um, but active active, is, active investment is the true way, in my opinion, to be ESG-focused. Yeah. But you pay for it. You've got to pay a high fee. Like Just look at the fees in Australian ethical and all that sort of stuff. Now, I will add one final bit of context here. Under the hoodie, you asked a really good question about the proliferation of non-ETF-like or non-passive-like ETFs. We are seeing an explosion of what's called actively managed ETFs or actively um, listed managed funds. And what this means is what, is, what this is telling you is that fund managers that actively invest have seen that ETFs are exploding and they want to cash in. The easiest way to do that is to take whatever fund they already have and put it in an ETF wrapper and put it on the stock exchange. It's very important though that, that you understand the way ETFs are named in Australia. You cannot be called a traditional ETF. You cannot use that in your title of your thing on the stock exchange if you use active strategies. It has to be tracking some sort of benchmark. Yeah. That's why they call them in brackets managed fund. ETMF. And if you use leverage, that's why it goes in brackets hedge fund. Yeah. So you, the ASX is actively trying to make you aware of the differences between them. Now, there's nothing wrong with this per se. This, was, this approach is the fund managers trying to get around what Drew was referring to before about the M funds trying to get around some of the brokers blocking their, the funds being available through that brokerage platform. They can't block it basically if it's an ETF because yeah. they have to offer their customers everything. But when it's an M fund service, it was slightly different. So that's basically my explanation here. And yeah, that we're going to see more non, non-passive ETFs slash funds. Just be really careful. Pay attention to the different naming. Just in summary, ETF is index tracking. Managed fund is active, hedge fund is leveraged or inverse or something crazy like that. Um, pay attention to that. And another piece of naming which you may already know under the hoodie is when it says physical in the name, what that means if it's a commodity ETF, it actually owns 
the underlying thing. So if, yeah. like the Global X Gold ETF is physical. The Beta Shares Gold ETF, QAU, is physical. But the Perth Mint ETF is not physical, even though it's backed by the WA government. So you have different naming conventions. Um, so that's probably a way to sort the wheat from the chaff. Drew, you unfortunately, mate, you do have to decide on the best name for this week. I actually had picked that. Uh, you I did? Kind of, I'm a bit of a Jim Carrey fan. Okay, go for it. Alrighty then. <laughs> okay, so if you sent through the question, uh, righty then, uh, please write into us. Did you agree? I think that's pretty good. I mean, there's so many good names here. I mean, Ban- <laughs> Sam Bankman Fried Harum is pretty good. Like, heaps of them are good. So, um, obviously, like, um, well, actually, probably my favorite is Zip. Adi Drudar. I liked owning the future. So okay, well, if you if you are either of these, Zip Adi Drudar, if you wrote that question about Vanguard ETFs in your in your super fund and outside of it, send us a message. Send me a message. Uh, if you are Kuraidi, then send us a message, and you will get a free pass to the Value Investor Program on Rask Education, my full curriculum on value investing. By the way, it's a hundred bucks off this weekend for Black Friday sales. Use the coupon code Cyber One Hundred. Drew, we covered way too much again. Uh, Aaron, 20 minutes, was it? Uh, Aaron, 12. Right. Um, that was fun, though. But next time, we're going we're gonna to tighten it up. We're going to tighten, tighten it up. <laughs> we're going to tighten it up. Um, but, Drew, happy 40th, mate. Uh, happy Thanks. birthday. Happy birthday year. I mean, these don't, <laughs> don't come along very often. So, um, mate, uh, yeah, congrats. Enjoy your weekend. Will do. I'll see few, you tomorrow. See, I'll see you today. A few, 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 few Negronis. I'll probably see you in about the next couple minutes as well. Um, but, mate, yeah. Thanks. And um, yeah, if you're out there, Lyndon, thank you for coming up to Drew. He was very excited. And uh, if you do see us in the street, be sure to stop us and say, uh, ask us about Zip or about the other company, which shall not be named. <laughs> I probably need to thank the Muriels too. Oh, yeah. Muriels, thank you um, for, for making Drew feel so all, special. And working all this afternoon to prepare for the party. Yeah. Do, what You didn't hear that, Jamie. Um, okay. Drew, mate, thanks for joining me. Good to be here again. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.